That Matter, Unite and Heal America. My guest, Rob Miller, Chief Marketing Officer of Hyperloop. Uh, excited to have Rob on the show and uh, to tell us a little bit about what his company is doing and what the future looks like for the environmental movement and how this is going to integrate into uh, systems that uh, we have around the country. It's um, I think what uh, Hyperloop seems to be up to is very futuristic. It's it's exciting, and um, I'd love to hear more and have our listeners hear more about this. Uh, Rob, welcome to the show. Hi, Matt. It's great to be here. Well, Rob, uh, tell us a little bit about how you came about uh, to came came to coming to this country uh, company and uh, kind of your story, your journey of of uh, why uh, you chose Hyperloop and and why you uh, you know believe so strongly in the company. Yeah, man, I you know I've spent about 10, 10, 15 years basically traveling. I lived overseas. I lived in Asia for ten years, and and part of that I was on you know I was you know commuting between country to country. So I had literally you know traveling between place to place was was in a sense my job, and you know I loved it. Um, you know, I got to commute on the bullet train in Japan and and uh, ride the maglev in Shanghai. You know, uh, going by going by motorcycle in Vietnam and tuk tuk in Thailand. So, you know, so, so traveling has always been really interesting. And and for me, it was, you know, and especially in the past twenty years, we've seen so much innovation in the moving of bits and bytes, right? The things that all are, are built into our our phones today. Um, but we still, you know, coming back to the States, you know, we still haven't seen much innovation in the moving of people and goods. So um, and I moved back to Washington, D.C. and was commuting on on Amtrak. And, uh, you know, I, I knew this innovation was always something that I've, that I've been interested in. And I'd read, uh, you know, Elon Musk's alpha paper on Hyperloop and thought, and this is absolutely fascinating, had uh, met the founder at South by Southwest back in 2015, 2016, and uh, been fortunate enough to, to join the company then. So what is your background in terms of, um, you know, what do you, what are the areas of expertise that, that you bring to the company? So, you know, I started off in, in neuroscience with the ambition of going to medical school, but then, you know, I started traveling and, uh, you know, and fall into, uh, you know, international trade and marketing. Um, and so that's the, uh, the kind of marketing and, and technology. So that's the, that's the kind of background that I, that I'm bringing. Okay. Uh, give the listeners, if you would, uh, a little bit of a sense of what Hyperloop does and, and what projects it's working on now. Sure. I mean, so the you know the basic idea of of Hyperloop is, I mean, it, it, you mentioned it's it's futuristic, but the reality is, uh, you know, if I asked you to guess when the first Hyperloops were, or you know, not called Hyperloops, but when the first Hyperloops were being built, you'd probably be surprised. Uh, you know, in a sense, the the first the 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 precursor to Hyperloop was a pneumatic train system that was constructed underground in New York City in the 1860s. So we've been thinking about this, uh, society has been thinking about this for a long time. The first patent in this area, it was a little over 100 years ago. Um, all the technology exists. It's just no one's really put it together. 
And the basic concept is you're traveling in a capsule, which is like a train, in a tube, where you vacuum out the air and take out the friction of the tube so that you can travel almost, almost frictionless, um, getting, getting airplane speeds on the ground and faster, and using a fraction of the energy at a fraction of the cost. Well, that definitely does sound futuristic. Um, so tell us a little bit about how you see us uh, getting to that point and kind of the practicality of, of uh, creating those systems. And so, you know, getting, getting to that point, the, the challenge for us uh, and the challenge to, to getting, because we've, we've now been at this for, since 2013, we, we started as a company. We really got, got going 2014, 2015. So we've been at this a number of years. The technology, in a sense, is, is the first generation, second generation technology is ready. What takes a little bit of time is the, is the regulations. So we've been working hard. We've been here working hard to build the regulatory, what will become the regulatory processes in, in the United States, in the European Union, and in different places around the world so that we can, we can help bring Hyperloop to life. So what, uh, what is preventing or what is the hurdle that uh, you, you see here in the U.S. in terms of creating a Hyperlink, say, in Los Angeles? So I think you know, we we'll separate those those two for a second. I mean, creating creating a hyperloop in the U.S. We've been fortunate enough that we're we and 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 everyone in the industry is receiving support from the Department of Transportation in a sense that the U.S. DOT has created a a new um, a new gr- subgroup within the Department of Transportation, the NETT, New and Emerging Transportation Technologies. Hyperloop itself is now classified under the National Rail Administration, so that would mean it's uh, you know it, it it's kind of brought Hyperloop and and other emerging transportation technologies more mainstream. So there is there is support. Um, we've done a feasibility study. Our first Hyperloop line would likely be in the Midwest, from Chicago to Cleveland to Pittsburgh. It's it's an ideal place for our first Hyperloop. Um, the promise of bringing it to Los Angeles, where where you and I live, and and I guess most of us are listening from, is it's going to take a little while. Um, but the the benefit would be that you know we're LA to San Francisco in 30 minutes. Well, that would be wonderful. Uh, I think all of us who have uh, taken flights or driven up to San Francisco on many occasions would be happy to do that trip in 30 minutes instead of. Uh, six hours or seven hours driving. Um, so would it, would it use some of the technology that uh, Elon Musk has uh, worked on as far as the tunneling, or would it be above, an above-ground system? Yeah, I mean, you know, if you, if you look at, I mean, transportation is essentially flow. And if you, look at, if you look at flow throughout nature, one of the most efficient flow systems in the human body are, are red blood cells. And red blood cells move, move efficiently because they move three-dimensionally. So if you look at transportation today and the problems of transportation, we're on a two-dimensional grid. So, uh, you know, any ability for us to take that into three dimensions, above ground, at ground, below ground, um, you know, really, adds, really adds to the potential to take away the gridlock. So the benefit with Hyperloop is that you can build Hyperloop. There are benefits to building above ground, but if you're – in the city of Los Angeles, 
it's really going to be really difficult in other cities around the world to build above ground new infrastructure systems. So tunneling becomes really important. And the, the advantage of tunneling is one, that tunneling technology continues to improve. And two, with Hyperloop, it's a, it's a smaller area for, for tunnels. So the cost is not as, not as restrictive as building for, let's say, high-speed rail or uh, you know, other forms of transportation. So tunneling is a, is a big, uh, boring or tunneling is a big component to it. Um, you know, Elon Musk and the boring company are working on you know, improving those technologies. We are as well. So I think that'll be a that'll be a, a big a big component to Hyperloop being successful in the future. So, are there any governmental subsidies uh, for this type of work, or where where are we at in terms of uh, government's involvement in in uh, helping this technology get off the ground? Well, I think that the the support has really been more building towards regulations and Hyperloop to date, or us and the other Hyperloop companies that have, um, you know, it's all been private, it's all been private investment. And, uh, you know, to build this, it's going to take a public, public-private partnership. So, you know, we look forward to continuing to work with, work with governments. Um, you know, we're, we're strong proponents of, of, of uh, in, investment and research and, and, tech, and research R&D into innovation, and, you know, Hyperloop is one of those innovations. Well, uh, everybody, you're listening to uh, Unite and Heal America with uh, my guest, Rob Miller, Chief Marketing Officer of Hyperloop. We'll be back in just one minute. You're listening to KABC 790. We're back with United Heal America with Matt Mattern. KBC 790, my guest, again, Rob Miller with Hyperloop. And, uh, Rob, I wanted to talk to you about what are the energy savings from this technology and why is it that uh, it's an important part of uh, an environmental strategy going forward? Yeah, Matt, thanks. I, you know, I think with the, you know, everything that's happened over the past year, you know, especially in the beginning, you know, last uh, last March, last April, when you saw a substantial decrease in, in global movement. And we also saw things like L.A. having one of the cleanest areas in the United States. There were towns in India that hadn't seen the Himalayas for 30 years that uh, now had now had this beautiful view. And I think we, you know, we, we got the, the opportunity to see what the world might look like if, uh, you know, if we're polluting a le- little less via transportation. Um, now, transportation is, it, it itself is directly responsible for the pollution from it for, for 8 million deaths a year. And uh, it's, the, it's the largest, um, the largest growing emitter of carbon dioxide. So, uh, you know, and, and living in China for a number of years and, and uh, you know, living in, in the middle of a, a polluted city, it, it, it has a tremendous impact on your health. So you know now that we we've we've had this opportunity, I, I think it, it's it's you know it's important that you know we're, when we're thinking about how to build transportation systems for the future, that that be a major element of it, not not because, not just because it's it's good for the earth, but that it's you know it's 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 good for our children, um, you know it's just re- reducing pollution. So the the benefit of Hyperloop is 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 a, there are a few. One is that um, you know, Hyperloop itself uses uses significantly less energy 
in operation because you're essentially working from this this friction friction free or nearly frictionless environment. So if you add, um, you know, it's a it's a transportation system that's mostly above ground. So if you add solar panels, um, take into account gains from kinetic energy and and wind, then you have the opportunity to operate a system that's using almost no energy or, you know, in, in you know, our case, the studies show that there's the potential to, to give energy back so that while operating the, the Hyperloop system, you're collecting as much energy as you use or you're actually collecting more energy than you're using. So I think the, from a, a, a sustainability perspective, from a, you know, pollution perspective, there, there are significant advantages to this type of technology. And, you know, it is going to be technology that's going to help to, to be, build a cleaner future for us. I was going to ask you, in terms of the cost, you were talking about your rollout from Chicago to Cleveland to Pittsburgh. And do you have a projected cost of, of what that system is going to be? Yeah, we, you know, we've, we did a full feasa, full the first interstate feasibility study um, that was in partnership, uh, in a partnership with um, with public agencies, and uh, you know the 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 interesting thing is that you know basically every mass transportation system in the world relies on subsidies of some form. It's they're not profitable. Outside of the the Hong Kong Metro, which relies on revenue from real estate, every other mass transportation system in the world is not profitable. So. The LA Metro, in a sense, is you know we're subsidizing every every trip to an extent, and you know we've accepted that as a society. So the potential with Hyperloop or Hyperloop-like systems is that you know you have a system that is extremely efficient um, and can be profitable. So the study the study from Cleveland to Chicago to Pittsburgh showed that you can actually you can actually get back the money invested in as little as 15 to 20 years, which is, which is unheard of in mass transportation. So then the question becomes not how much does it cost, but you know, how soon can you, can you make a profit from it? And the investors would, wouldn't, you know, wouldn't necessarily be, it wouldn't be on the backs of the taxpayers, uh, you know, completely public investment. It would be a public private partnership because then what you have is a profitable system in transportation. And what percentage do you see coming from the public and what percentage coming from private uh, individuals and businesses? Yeah, I think, you know, it's, it's going to that, uh, you know, we're still, we have still have to wait and see. And you know, in a sense, it's going to change by, by area, by state, by country, um, that, that kind of, uh, because you have, if you look at rail systems around the world, there's no, there's no one rail operator. Um, you know, a lot of these rail systems are nationalized, some are private. So, uh, you know, it's really going to vary place by place. So in terms of dollars out of pocket, uh, what is what is the rough cost of this system to roll out from Chicago to Pittsburgh? Uh, in I assume billions of dollars, it's probably got to be certainly reasonably expensive to have that sophisticated of a system implemented. Yeah, it's, you know, we're, we're looking at probably about two-thirds of the cost of, of a high-speed rail system. I think the estimates are somewhere between 20 to $40 million per mile. Um, but, uh, but again, it's, it's, you know, it's 
the fact that you with the high speed rail there's not much potential for us for you to get that money back in 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 uh, profit and in revenue and profit and and that's not the case with hyperloop so it's it's uh, you know it's significantly cheaper than high speed rail and it's uh it's potentially profitable yeah why is it so hard to to build a high speed rail here in california and why would a hyperlink uh, be a better bet for us yeah, it's you know, I mean, and and I am, uh, you know, traveling on the bullet bullet train and and understanding that this is technology that was built 60 years ago in Japan. I'm I'm a, I'm a fan of of high speed rail, so uh, you know, I think the 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 challenge here in California is that you know we're still talking about LA to San Francisco two hours and and 50 minutes. Um, there there are a number of problems, and I think they're they're well documented on on um on why it's it's so challenging uh but you know hyperloop we're, we're talking about a fraction of the cost um hyperloop we're talking about um uh, you know much much faster so uh, you know it's it's going to take some time we're we're building we've built a full scale system in Toulouse we're we're operational um we're uh, we'll be breaking ground next year on the first passenger system so Hyperloop is happening. It's it's just going to take a little bit of time to to make it here in Los Angeles. So in terms of what you're doing in Toulouse, uh, France, uh, what's the what is um, the status of that project? So we have uh, you know we Toulouse, France is known as the aerospace capital of of Europe. Um, it's it's the home of Airbus and a number of other companies. A really great place for innovation. Um, the aerospace engineering is is uh, is some of the best in Europe, which is why we chose chose Toulouse as a as a home for our prototype. And essentially, what we have there is a 320 meter full scale prototype. So we're talking about um, 14 foot tubes and a 100 foot long capsule. Um, and essentially, we're integrating all of those components and and doing our testing there. Okay, so where will they have a an actual line that uh, is operational, or just uh, more of a prototype uh, situation? So in, in Toulouse, I mean, this is the in this is the prototype. Um, from here, we're looking at Abu Dhabi as the first. It would be the first commercial line. Starts with three miles, five kilometers, and from there we would um, have the system certified and regulated. From that regulation, we can build we can build full lines. Okay. Will the Abu Dhabi project be an above ground system or a um, or some other variant? It will. It's 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 completely flat and and there's lots of there's lots of space, so it makes it a ideal uh, an ideal uh, geography for for the first hyperloop system. So how soon will the Abu Dhabi uh, project be operational? So we're we're looking about from uh, from the start of construction from the start of construction and you know there's been a little bit of, of uh, delay and uncertainty with with uh, everything that's happened with COVID. We're looking about um, three years to from, from construction date to operation. So uh, so three four years we're we're hoping to be to have passengers. Um, uh, passengers riding in a hyperloop. 
And uh, who is, who's behind the uh, funding of that? Is that uh, the Abu Dhabi government or uh, private investors? It's, it's private investors. Okay. And uh, do you have an estimated cost of what it's, what's going to be to build that system? I don't think we've disclosed that, um, but I, I think it's at some some point in the future we can we can talk about the, the cost there. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm always concerned. Uh, I think uh, just generally there is a sense of the feasibility of different technologies, and I recognize that. Back with uh, Unite and Heal America with Matt Matter, my guest, and Rob Miller, Chief Marketing Officer for Hyperloop. And uh, Rob, I want to talk to you a bit about the structure of Hyperloop as a company. It's uh, it's kind of a fascinating uh, way that uh, your group operates. And what you had told me is that there's approximately about 50, 60 employees, and then you have 800 contributors who work for stock and other 50 partner companies that work uh, with your company to help roll out this technology. Maybe you could describe that for us a little bit uh, as that is a fairly, um, you know, unique model as compared to kind of a traditional corporate structure. Yeah, it's, it it is, it is a unique model and uh, you know, we're, we're fortunate that, um, the, the Harvard Business School has written two cases about us. The most recent one was just published recently, and we've been um, teaching classes in in Harvard this semester and talking about um, how we work. You know, essentially, if you wanted to start Matt, a, a Hyperloop company tomorrow, right, as a startup, um, you would need, uh, you know, let's say we're starting in, in Los Angeles. We want to we want to start a, a new Hyperloop company. Um, you know, if we're doing a traditional way we would need to find um, engineering in a number of different areas, just engineering alone, uh, aerospace, aeronautics, nuclear physics, magnetic levitation, vacuum technology, and a half a dozen others. So we would look for the best people available. Some of the best people available are not, uh, some of the best people out there are not available. They're, they're working for some of the great companies we have in the region, uh, you know, the NASA, Tesla, SpaceX, uh, you know, a number of others. And uh, so the, the cost already becomes so prohibitive that it's, it, it makes a project like Hyperloop almost impossible. Um, you need hundreds of millions of dollars to, to essentially even get started. So, you know, what we realized is there's this, um, you know, there's this cognitive surplus around the world of people that want to be involved in, in projects like this who generally either have full-time jobs or, or doing other things who can commit a little bit of time to, to Hyperloop, let's say 10 hours a week. So um, our founder, Dirk Alborn, had a, um, a NASA-funded incubator who, called Jumpstart, Jumpstart Fund who, um, who you know, essentially would gather this, this crowd to, you know, a little bit like crowdsourcing, a little bit crowd to work on projects. And immediately after the, the alpha paper came out, they asked, do we, you know, they, they put a call to action. Do, is Hyperloop something that this, this community wants to work on? And we received this, uh, you know, overwhelming yes. Um, we had a little over 100 engineers join, and, and uh, 
So these are people that did amazing things already, like um, <clears throat> be part of the building of the CERN Large Hadron Collider. Um, we even had someone who's passed away since, but well, he was active on the Manhattan Project. So, you know, they did the initial feasibility for, for what a Hyperloop is. What they came to was it's not exactly like the Alpha paper. Um, there are a few, few differences, but this is something that's absolutely feasible. So from there, we, we started a company essentially um, you know, essentially a form of, of crowdsourcing, but there's no volunteers in our company. Everyone is is uh, remunerated via via equity, via stock options. So, um, you know, we asked to, if anyone wants to be involved in the project and they can make a contribution. Um, you know, we'll we'll bring them on board. Be um, a minimum of 10 hours a week for equity. So, you know, since we've we've grown then into a little bit more of a traditional company in that we have 50, 60 employees around the world. Um, we have contractors, but we also have what we call contributors, who are those who are those that um, you know are helping us bring this to life in exchange for equity. And what that's allowed us to do is to really bring on some of the, the uh, some, some of these amazing people who wouldn't have time or wouldn't be able to join us full time. But can make contributions in these in these areas to help to move the technology forward. That is that is fascinating, and it does seem like that could be the wave of the future. And that uh, people might not work for just one company; they might work for four or five different companies, or ten, or uh, whatever their bandwidth might uh, allow them to to work on. So. In terms of how do you how do you vet uh, the applicants who who might come to you and say, hey, we've got we've got a contribution. We'd like to be a part of this team. How do you uh, discern whether or not this person is a good fit for your team? It's a it's a little bit it's a you know, radically different system to so if if you were to join a Google for example. Their, their interview process is famously long. You're going to have seven, eight, 10, 11 interviews. And then once you're in, you're in and trusted. Um, so our process is a little bit different than that. We'll, you know, we'll have, um, you know, we, we do have a, you know, the, the initial hurdle is still, still, you know, a little, a little bit big in, in that we want to make sure that, that you're able to, you're able to, to contribute. That's something you, you want to do. Um, you're able to add value. And then, but once you're in, we, we start, Usually we start on an initial project and, you know, we see how that goes. And, you know, if you're successful, then you kind of get, if you think of it as a concentric circle, um, you know, peeling, peeling layers of the onion, it's the same thing. Essentially, you, you know, the more you succeed, the closer you get to the core of the company. Uh, the benefit for, for us has been that we've been able to find the, you know, the ones that are, that are, you know, part of our core team or the employees are, are the ones that have succeeded in this, in this model um, who, you know, some have amazing resumes, some have, um, you know, resumes that you wouldn't, you wouldn't predict they would be successful, but we've been able to build this amazing team because they're tested in a sense. And, uh, and it's, uh, it's allowed us to, to, you know, we, you, you, you're able to weed out people that really aren't interested in working pretty quickly or aren't able to contribute pretty quickly and you're able to find the kind of the, the true gems as well. How did uh, you come upon this model? Was this something that you were uh, saw another company doing successfully and then mimicked it, or was it something that uh, you kind of invented on your own? 
Yeah, this was this was our founder Dirk Alborn, and the the motto, which we're calling crowd powered, is something that he really he really invented. But it was you know it's adopted from this idea of uh, you know of of many contributing and and the advances that we've had in in communications, so that we have this this global community, this this cognitive surplus, this people that want to be involved in passion projects. Um, you know, we're just um, you know, we're just one of the, you know, we're one of those projects that, that are bringing people, bringing people together. And I think for us, it's, it's a, we're not, we're not perfect in this model. I think we're still, you know, we're still only at a percentage of, uh, you know, percentage short, we're maybe at 30, 40% of what it could be, but we're trying to learn every day and to, and to be more efficient and effective. Well, it does sound fascinating. I think that uh, bringing in people, from different parts of the world and different disciplines uh, who have a passion for, for the type of work that you're doing and, and giving them an opportunity to contribute is uh, I think as an important lesson for the business community to open up their doors, to allow say divergent groups to be a part of the process and, and give them a chance to, to contribute. It's, uh, I think could be transformative to our business community. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, uh, you know, for us and, and early on, I realized, you know, one of the first meetings we were with the propulsion and, and levitation team talking about the gap, um, you know, the gap between the, it's a magnetic levitation system. It's a next generation magnetic levitation system. Um, the gap between the, the track and the magnets and the, the shorter the gap, the greater the efficiency. Um, you know, one of our, you know, one of our, our, our contributors, Dr. David Dahl was, was, um, you know, it, it said we were talking about one of those, one of those issues. And he, he went up to the board and, and put a formula on the board. He said, in, you know, in the early 1990s, we were working on this, uh, you know, we were working on this to, it took us a month to solve this problem. Here's the solution. So I mean, that, that's something that, as a traditional company, would be would be incredibly challenging to to uh, to utilize that knowledge. And and those kind of those kind of small breakthroughs have um, have really been uh, you know what's what's helped the powered what's helped the power our, our success so far. So where where do you see that kind of uh going for for your firm what's the quantum leap going forward that's going to take you from prototype to initiating this on a on a global scale or and how is that going to look what's what are your plans what's the design of the company to to take that that quantum leap that's a, it's a great question it's i mean the, that that uh, that i think every uh, you know, every mid-stage startup uh, startup uh, deals with is how do you how do you scale effectively? And you know, for us, it's you know, it's us. It's not losing the power of the model, but building our building our core base along with our best-in-class partners. Right now, we have we have 50 partners, including um, and some in some investors like Hitachi Rail. Who are um, you know we're partnering with them on technology. Uh, you know, capsule development was one was one area where we had a strong partnership where 
know, we were told it would take um, it would take 10 years and and uh, 400 million dollars to build the first Hyperloop capsule. In a sense, we were you know we were able to do it in a fraction of the time because we're working with uh, a company called Artificial, who um, you know essentially were were helping to were helping airlines like um, like Airbus build better carbon fiber structures. So they had that they had 60 years of institutional knowledge, and were able to see the the airplane industry go from um, go from you know five percent to 60 percent uh, composite composite uh, composite material. Um, and for us, we can start at 85, 90% for the capsule, which makes it, makes it lighter, which makes it stronger. Um, it's kind of the, using that institutional thinking and starting fresh. So it's, uh, it's strengthening our, our partner network, um, <clears throat> having these best in class partners, strengthening our contributor network and, and building our core team around the world. Well, uh, it's a fascinating story because I think it uh, comes at, from two different angles, you've got a, a technology company uh, that is working on an environmental issue and then doing it in a way that is not traditional in terms of using uh, new models of business um, is, uh, is a great story for, for all of us to, to look, at, look at this problem differently, the environmental uh, crisis that we're in and, and changing kind of the conversation. So uh, it's fascinating. I think uh, we should be investigating this further. We've got the chief marketing officer, Rob Miller from Hyperloop, and uh, you're listening to Unite and Heal America with Matt Matter on KBC 790. We'll be back in just one minute. Nightful America with Matt Matter and my guest again, Rob Miller from Hyperloop. We're talking about uh, advances of technology and helping our environment uh, be cleaner and greener going into the 21st century. Uh, Rob, just want to go back to something we talked about earlier, which is how the Department of Transportation is uh, working with you and other high-tech companies. Um, have you seen a shift in since uh, January with the new administration, or were you working with the Department of Transportation prior to that in rolling out this technology? Well, essentially, the, you know, we, what we've seen from Hyperloop is really uh, truly bipartisan support. So we were working with um, the Child Administration, and there was a lot of uh, great developments in the Department of Transportation. Um, the formation of a net council is new and emerging transportation. Um, the classification of Hyperloop as uh, under the National Rail Authority, and um, you know we look forward to we look forward to working with the Buttigieg administration in the in the Department of Transportation. And um, you know we we feel that uh, that the, the the focus on on clean energy transportation is really a, fa- a fantastic thing, both both here in the U.S. and in the in the in Europe as well. How about in uh, Japan, where they have uh, the maglev trains? Uh, are they uh, looking at uh, using this technology? Because obviously they were an early adopter in in getting the high speed rail systems. Yeah, there's you know, I mean, having spent a lot of years living and 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 traveling in Japan, um, you know, fairly good connections there. The 
you know, they're building a, a, the first maglev bullet train, which I think will be completed in the next few years. So there's, there's some advances. So there's a lot of interest in the technology. I think there's a, a, a cautious approach to, um, to building. So there would be, you know, a lot of research with the one thing with the, the, the safety record of the bullet train and, and almost six years of operation without a single fatality. So, um, you know, the Japanese are doing something right there. And, and we, you know, we anticipate that uh, Japan will be, you know, will be one of the places that, you know, eventually will incorporate something like a Hyperloop, but, um, you know, we'll do it on Japanese terms. Well, in terms of you, you partnering with Hitachi Rail, I just thought uh, that's a Japanese company. And uh, what's, uh, what's the connection there and how do they uh, see their partnership with you uh, rolling out in the years to come? Yeah, we we've, we announced this this partnership and investment from Hitachi Rail, and and for us it was a you know, and for us and for the industry, it's a signal that you have these um, these transportation companies that some would view as legacy transportation companies, but are actually very innovative now, investing in and thinking about and providing technologies for Hyperloop. So this initial partnership will be signaling communication, which is you know one of the the areas where they're best in class for Hitachi Rail. Um, we're working together on on building that signaling communications for for Hyperloop TT. So it's a you know it's a it's a pretty exciting time for us, and it's an exciting partnership. We think that'll only grow. Well, I guess it uh, it's that question of when your technology becomes uh, inevitable, and as opposed to just a science project type dream versus this is an inevitability that we will move in that direction. And uh, have you, have you crossed that divide from science project to inevitability? Yeah, Matt, and, and, and I know some of the, there's still probably some skepticism for some of the listeners here, but we're, we're with Hyperloop. It's not a matter of if anymore. It's really a matter of when. Um, and, uh, you know, we've seen, you know, especially the past one, two years, uh, this is something where, uh, you know, in, in, in that, uh, you know, people have doubted from the beginning, but we keep making progress. And now we're seeing, you know, we're seeing mainstream players come into the Hyperloop industry. We're seeing governments preparing for, to build. We're seeing, you know, governments like Japan and Korea and Russia, um, you know, developing the technologies as well. So it's, um, it's it's not a matter of if, it's only a matter of when. And the matter of when is, you know, we're not decades away. We're we're at the point where we're years away from Hyperloop. Well, uh, how is uh, Russia and Korea and Japan? How are they approaching it? And are they competitors of yours? And uh, you know, are these competitors helping you because they're also driving innovation and and shifting the way? Uh, the world thinks about these technologies. Yeah, I think there's a there's a lot of opportunity for for cooperation. So in a sense, we you know we would likely be a technology provider. Um, you know, there was a, a, a consortium and an agreement in South Korea. Um, you know, we've uh, we've had extensive talks with the Chinese government. Um, the Chinese government is working on the technology as well. So we uh, you know they they've, they've uh, they consider this a strategic technology for China. So we, you know, look forward to advancing those conversations and, and being a technology provider for those places around the world. 
So in some places, you know, the systems wouldn't be built by us. It would be built by probably the Chinese government or a Chinese firm, but we would, you know, in a sense, start a joint venture. For us, it's really about, you know, Matt, how can we bring this to life? I mean, this is, uh, you know, we're, we're fans, we're advocates. We, you know, we want to, to, to wake up in the morning and, and build a better future. So, you know, in the end, our goal was really to, to bring the, this next breakthrough in transportation to life, and, and we're just fighting to do it. Well, it, it is an exciting uh, venture, and I guess I, you know, turning to a little bit of the politics of this, when you mentioned it being a strategic technology, and I can see that, and, and the, the Chinese government has a history of wanting American companies and any foreign company that does business in China to tr- do a transfer of technology to the government. And, um, you know, I guess I'm a little suspicious of that and, and have been critical publicly of uh, the Chinese government's attempts to, uh, or more than attempts, uh, actually has uh, pressured and coerced uh, American companies to transfer their technologies as part of uh, doing business in China. And uh, I guess um, I'm still skeptical of that. I, I wonder how uh, your firm is looking at that and, and how it would uh, safeguard its intellectual property when doing business with uh, in China. Yeah, and with, absolutely, with, with good reason. I you know, was living in Shanghai when the, you know, they finished constructing the, the maglev, and the maglev was... You know, essentially built by uh, by German technology, um, the rest of high speed rail in China was built by was built by Chinese firms. So uh, you know there there are a lot of lessons to draw in there. Um, for us, you know, protecting our intellectual prof you know IP intellectual property is absolutely critical. Uh, so we're you know we've um, we've we've essentially you know tried tried to to take the lessons of the past and and uh, and and learn and apply them. So how, uh, you know, I guess it's a it's a pretty technologically challenging area, and I, I don't uh, pretend to be a tech expert, but uh, have some some uh, passing knowledge of intellectual property law, and curious as to how does one partner up with the Chinese government and still maintain one's integrity in terms of. Um, just keeping that that technology secure. Yeah, it's it's uh, you know something that we you know, we haven't rushed to to form a joint venture, and we haven't rushed to a partnership because we want to make sure we get it right. Um, so it's something we're we're still working on, and uh, you know something we want to make sure we we get right. How about other governments turning a little bit closer to home in California? Uh, do you see any assistance from state governments in, in rolling out this technology, or are they still kind of sitting on the fence waiting to see uh, how effective it is in, in uh, the prototype stage? Yeah, I think, I mean, that's, that's going to come. We're not quite there yet. Uh, you know, once we build, uh, you know, once we build this, this commercial, this first commercial system, and we have regulations in place, and we're we're moving passengers from one one place to another. Then I think that it becomes much, uh, you know, becomes a much safer bet. 
um, you know, in a sense that, uh, but, but this is happening and it's, it's just, it's really just a matter of time. Well, it's a, uh, it's a fascinating project. I, I, um, as somebody who's a bit of an entrepreneurial, uh, mind, I, I appreciate and applaud your efforts at starting with the company as employee number two, and now you've grown to 50 plus employees and, and uh, hundreds of different uh, contractors who, and contributors who work with you and 50 partner companies is an impressive uh, record of showing that uh, this technology does have some degree of feasibility and uh, you're rolling it out and making it happen. So that is, uh, that's amazing work and we are certainly be watching you going forward. Anything in particular that our listeners should be on lookout for or, if they have an interest in contributing to uh, work with your company, what uh, what would they do? Yeah, just just take a look out for. I mean, you can go to our website at hyperlooptt.com to learn more, and then you know we're we're on all of the social medias, and uh, you know I I you know we're always in need of advocates and and expertise. So um, you know, feel free to visit us there, or uh, yeah, anyone can reach out to me directly as well. That's great. Well, uh, again, thank you so much, uh, Rob, for being on the show, uh, Chief Marketing Officer of Hyperloop. Uh, you've been listening to KBC 790 with United and Heal America. This is Matt Matter, and we'll look forward to uh, our show next week, and hope, hopefully everybody can join us. Um, it's been a fascinating conversation with Rob talking about how this uh, – this new technology could change the way we travel between cities across the country and, and across the world, saving energy and saving time. It's, uh, it's uh, kind of futuristic. So we're looking forward to seeing uh, your company succeed going forward and, and maybe talking to you in the, in the months to come. So, Thanks, Matt. It's been a pleasure.